Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great Thank conversation. You. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com Pods. Pods? Of well, yeah, like of dolphins, but in this case also of casts. A cast of pods, mm-hmm. for example. Does it like come in like a attorneys general podcast. <laughs> I'm Robert Evans. This is Behind the Bastards, a show a where we talk about I do have a lot of podcasts. Thank you, Jamie. Yeah. As you might notice uh, in my show about talking about bad people, I have guests, and today that guest is Madame Ooh. Jamie Loftist. Ooh. I'll take that. Uh, yeah, yeah, lofts, lofts us. Mm-hmm. Lofts us. Yeah, that's when yes. there's more than one of us in the room. Yeah, it's lofts yes. us. And, and and then there's Sophie's Lichterman. It's it's yeah. all. Uh, we should attorneys general all plurals is what what, what <laughs> the statement I'm coming into. <laughs> it's it's a complicated language, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah. beautiful. Jamie, how yeah. are you doing? Uh, you know, all I, things yeah. considered. <laughs> mm-hmm. Robert, you should stop I, asking I learned, that question. <laughs> I have HPV. I have HPV, I learned. Oh. I have I'm, HPV. Yeah. I'm sorry. That's no, not it's good. It's fine. Ideal. It's, it's a it's a fun it's a fun middle non threatening HPV. Uh, oh good. That I guess. I, yeah, at first <laughs> it, it was a fun it's nice to have some suspense in your life that mm-hmm. is like you know, not mm-hmm. a little less existential where they're like, is it good HPV or bad HPV? Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, it's, you know, it's, it's middling HPV. Well, I'm going to ask our fucked. listeners. <laughs> I'm going to ask all of our listeners when this episode drops to tag us on Twitter and tell us if you have HPV as well. Do you have um, HPV? If so, just fill our Twitter mentions, individual threads. Don't comment on the episode. Like it tag us individually each time. Absolutely. Overwhelm our Twitters. 
everyone um, so many people have hpv and, and i know people, it's so but my my dad did see my twitter post about it and then he was just he he was shocked he thought hpv uh, was was really gonna get me and then i just had to tell him it's yeah, not gonna get it's me. not this is we're going not to raise you, awareness about mm. hpv by overwhelming and making our twitters unusable for several days with a flood of people <laughs> <laughs> discussing their presence or lack thereof of of HPV. Cheers yeah. to that. Um, so that's mm-hmm. my uh, since between the, the last update, uh, the last episode I was on in this, I I uh, I learned I had HPV. I don't think I got it then. I just went to a gynecologist for the first time in in four years. Because health Yay. insurance. Yeah, it's good exactly. to have health insurance. I haven't it's, been to a gynecologist in a long time. Well, that's you really got to get your pap every couple of uh, every couple I know, of years. You I know. I know. Careful. Uh huh. Uh, paps and bagels both need schmear. Um, swish. <laughs> swish. Swish. Nailed it. Nailed Evans it. With the swish. Ah. Uh, all right. Well, we should talk. We should do the thing that is our job. Yeah. To do yes, casting which pods. Is cast pods. Yeah. The only thing that matters in this world. What's fun about this episode, Jamie, is that this is an episode about disasters and how human beings respond to them. Ooh. And we're recording it right before the election. And by the time <laughs> it drops, the entire world could be a radically different place. And that's uh, fun. Uh, I want to. I want to listen back to this episode later and feel absolutely sick to my stomach. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. It's <laughs> yeah. going to be so good. I can't wait. <laughs> We're talking today about elite panic. Ooh. Yeah, that's the bastard of today. So okay. I want to start our story, or our episode today, with the story of a man named Juan Pio Paiva. Uh, he okay. was born on September 20th, 1946, in Cazapa, Paraguay. And while he is most definitely a bastard, he's not the bastard of our episode. We're going to start with him, though. Um, Juan grew up working class in a town 250 kilometers, or fake miles, southeast of Paraguay's capital, uh, which is uh, Asuncion. Uh, Now, his dad was a bus driver, and he started working at age 16, selling tickets on his father's bus. His family also owned a butcher shop, and he worked there as a young adult until he had enough money to open a small butcher shop of his own in the capital, Hmm. uh, which is, again, Asuncion. Uh, Now, which I'm probably pronouncing somewhat wrong. Well, you famously pronounce everything right. But I famously pronounce everything right. I know. By the time he was 30, he owned two butcher shops. uh, And through frugal money management and a keen sense of finances, Juan was able to open his first grocery store in 1985. He named it Yacua Bolaños, which means well of water, and was a reference to a mythical healing spring near his hometown. Hmm. Now, Juan's business was successful, but his growing wealth was met by a growth in the stingy tendency that had helped him rise above his humble origins. He kept his own accounts and he paid suppliers himself. He forced his employees to work under what one local paper described as an enslaving regime. Um, Oh. Yeah. So that's not, you know, nice. You get one butcher shop and look what happens. Mm Mm-hmm. It's funny, too, because, like, the positive articles that you'd read about him would call him, like, say he came from a peasant background. But it's like, I mean, I guess, like, you're not rich just because your family owns a butcher shop. But, like, you're not like, I don't know, peasant seems weird for a family that is a business owner. But I don't know. Business, yeah. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. Like, not, not that there's anything wrong with owning a butcher shop, but like peasant is a, anyway, whatever. Uh, one kept his office behind the cashier so he could watch them at all times through the large glass windows that he had installed uh, and intervene at once if he was unhappy with their performance, which he frequently was. Um, hmm. It's kind of a dick boss, you know, okay. we've all, I, I'm going to guess most people who've worked in the service industry have had a boss like that. Sure. Like really sure. unnecessarily obsessed with your, what you're doing at all times. Now, 
Yucua Bolaños <sighs> became a, a modest chain of supermarkets uh, with two full grocery stores and one hypermarket, which is kind of similar to a mall, multiple restaurants, shops, you know, a bunch of it, it can hold a shitload of people like a really big grocery store, right? Like okay. a normal grocery store in the United States, but big, you know, but bigger? Uh, at the time. Again, we're talking like the 80s here. Oh, so, oh okay. Yeah. His company's slogan was Yucua Bolaños synonymous with quality and low prices. In 1997, Juan, whose nickname was apparently The Baby, expanded his business Wait, into a... Jo- yeah. Okay. Hold on. What, Jamie? Yes, like, he's the baby. Like he was the ba- he's the baby and you gotta love him? Why? Is yeah. there any reason? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I've only found out I'm that... I'm the baby unless you're I, the rapper. No, that's I think that's what people baby, called him. Jamie. The baby. The baby is from Dinosaurs, that TV show, right? Yeah, the baby that... And you know, gotta love him. Guy. Come on, continue. I I know the baby from. Di- so wait, he's called the baby, and then he's like, "But don't ask why I'm called the baby." That's a red well, no, flag. just the, I, I only a lot of so for because of the story we're about to tell is primarily there's some international stories because it's wild, but most of the good stories were local, and so I had to Google translate them, and I was not able to find anything else about why he was called the baby, but his nickname was the baby. Okay, the baby. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to struggle getting past this, but 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 I'm here. I'm here. Yeah. So he's the baby uh, and he he's expands his business into a joint stock company. So he, he makes it into a corporation with like stock and shareholders and shit. Uh, and he starts soliciting investments. Now, the number of Yucuabalanos hypermarkets increased after this point because now they have a bunch of funding. In 2001, Juan opened his largest store yet, Yucuabalanos Botanico, named for its proximity to the capital botanical gardens. This massive new building was 12,000 square feet with a dining area that was capable of seating 600 people alone. So Whoa. very big fucking store. He's, That's he's a big baby. Yeah, it's a big baby. It's a big old baby. It's a big old um, botanical baby. Yes. So yeah, he gets he he, he gets things going on um, and everything's, yeah, he's making a lot of money. He's got a bunch of stores. His net worth climbs to more than $8 million. Um, mm-hmm. And at this point, you know, he's too busy and has too many employees to watch over each of them in like the slightly creepy stalking way that he had before. Aww. This caused him a lot of anxiety because he was always terrified that his employees might steal from him. Maybe to go ensure that the Yeah, maybe go away. Now, to ensure that the crowning jewel of his empire didn't lose a single centavo that was due to it, uh, Juan appointed the only man he could trust to the job of stalking his employees. His son, Victor Daniel. Now, Victor had always been something of a disappointment to Juan. The father had hoped his son might one day play for the national soccer team, but Victor tended towards obesity and was not at all athletically inclined. Uh, Still, he was able to earn some amount of his father's pride by being every bit the miser and tyrannical enforcer that Juan had been. One journalist described him as tough on employees and stingy on suppliers. But did they call him the little baby? The baby's baby. Baby son Junior? of the baby, baby the Junior, son of the baby. Yeah, let's let I've settled on son of the baby. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so stingy was kind of an ongoing theme in the growing empire of Juan Pio Paiva and his son. While the Yucuabalanos Botanico was a massive structure in the pride of his corporation, corners were cut at every single stage of construction. The ducts from the grill in the kitchen, the bakery, and the rotisserie did not vent outside. Instead, they pumped smoke and gas into a chamber between the ceiling and the roof of the building. The roof had no... (laughs) Hold on. Yeah. Hold on. Okay, okay. So there's there's just a pollution room. There's just a fire room. Yeah, there's a fu- there's a room to cause a fire. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. There there is Jesus. a poison room. They, like like our recording studio in our in our 
in our beloved place that we can't record it anymore because of the plague, there's That's a poison true. room in the Yucubalanos Botanico. Oh, I miss um, the poison room. I miss it too. I miss it too. <laughs> as soon as this plague is over, I'm going to throw more poison into it. Lock I me promise. in the poison room. I'm ready. Yeah. Yeah. We're all ready for the poison room. So they That's also have be... a workplace poison room. Now I feel more mm-hmm. connected. Yeah. Except for in theirs, they're venting all of the gas and smoke from their mini ovens cooking for tens of thousands of people on a weekly basis uh, into this room. And the roof of the room has no wind extractors. Also, you know what else they don't have, Jamie? What? (laughs) Smoke alarms. No! None of those! Why would you have smoke alarms in your death trap? Uh, There's no sprinklers either. Uh, All of the stopcocks on the fire hoses were closed. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so again, absolutely no safety measures taken in this building meant to hold thousands of customers. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. So it's the Titanic of grocery stores. (laughs) Yes, it is. It is the Titanic of... No lifeboats on this business. Oh, God, it's amazing. It's so fucking funny. It's not, because what's about to happen is one of the worst things I've ever heard about. Juan skimped on any emergency training that might have prepared his employees in the event of a fire as well, because if you're not going to take any other preparations for a fire, why would you even think about it? You know, start now. Yeah. You, you, that would be speaking it into being, Jamie. It's like the secret, you know? If you think about it, it will come to you. If you don't, don't think of fire, yeah. I don't want to manifest a gigantic, devastating mm-hmm. grocery store fire. Yeah, yeah. That's, That's why I thinking. cut out the seatbelts on all of my cars, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you want, otherwise, you're just inviting tragedy. You're inviting an accident in. Yeah. Exactly. I don't want to have an accident when I'm drunk driving my forerunner through a trailer park, you know? <laughs> No, and that's why you've never gotten into trouble that way. And that's why I've never gotten into trouble that you've way. You've been saying that for years. I've been saying that for years, shouting it at police officers chasing me in my forerunner <laughs> for you, years. As you drunk drive your your forerunner. I admire yeah. it. It's, it's, yeah, it's always something I've really admired. Yeah. Now, uh, so yeah, Juan takes, again, like not, like aggressively takes no safety precautions <laughs> for his massive building meant to cook and hold thousands of people. Um yeah, I mean, obviously, like, if he had done things like train his employees, given have some sort of fire safety plan, that would have distracted from the time they could spend working, which would be the same as them stealing from him. And Juan is not going to allow that to happen. Showed so. them how included a hose or two. <laughs> These are all unnecessary time like, sucks. Disabled the hoses that there were. Like the That's so... <laughs> it's that's so like funny. <laughs> more work than not. Like, that's so aggressive. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so he's funny is the wrong begging. word. He, he's begging. He's begging for this grocery he's store to explode. pleading for an explosion. Yeah. Okay. Now, the question, Jamie, of how Juan's company was able to get away with vi- blatant violations of local fire codes is an important one because, again, Paraguay is a country. They have laws about making death traps, right? You're okay. not supposed to. So there's <laughs> a good question dull. like, how did he get to make a death trap? And it may have had something to do with the fact that he had a cozy friendship with Juan Carlos Wasmosi, the president of Paraguay from 1993 to 1998. In 2002, Wasmosi was convicted of stealing $6 million from the government social welfare institute and diverting it to his personal bank account. So the odds are quite good that Juan Paiva bribed him to make concerns over the building's safety go away, right? Like... Yeah. The guy who we know was crooked as shit probably was being crooked as shit. Yeah. And, and Juan Carlos why, was like, oh, that's the baby. Yeah. Do that's whatever the baby. you want. That's yeah. the baby. Of course, baby. You gotta yeah. love him. You gotta yeah. love him. Especially if he pays you really cuddly. Thousands of dollars. Yeah. yeah. Baby, son of baby, let them do whatever they want. Let them do whatever they want. I often say that mm. about babies and about I, owners of grocery stores. We've given enough passes to the baby. 
I'll yeah. say it. So, unfortunately, Jamie, I don't know if you're aware of this, but you cannot bribe the laws of physics uh, uh-huh. yet. I'm working on it. Okay. Life finds a way, as Ian Malcolm <laughs> said. So, for three years, the mini ovens of the Yucubolanius Botanica ran all day long, venting smoke and gas up into the roof without any way for it to escape. Eventually, more than 9,000 cubic meters of flammable gases had accumulated up there, turning okay. the whole roof into, of the massive complex into a ticking time bomb. And then, sometime in the summer of 2004, one of the building's ovens got plugged. And timely action was not taken to unplug it, like fix the jam. And unbeknownst okay. to Victor, a fire burned behind the obstruction in the ovens. They weren't cleaning the ovens. There's a blockage, and there's embers burning behind the blockage. So they don't realize okay. that there's embers burning behind it. And yeah, obviously, like, so this fire catches on all of the grease, and the grease starts to burn behind the obstruction in this oven, and it sends embers no up one sees it? into the sieve. Yeah, no one sees it. They think okay. the oven is just blocked and dead. But behind the obstruction, there are embers burning that catch onto the grease, and embers start to float up into the ceiling, which mm-hmm. is, again, an enormous bomb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a bomb to me. Yeah. On the morning of August 1st, one of those embers finally ignited the pocket of gas in the ceiling. It happened while more than a thousand people were inside the business. Most of them were mothers, many of whom had their children with them. One male customer who was present later recalled, We were entering the supermarket when there was an explosion. I could see how bodies, especially little ones, flew through the air. Arms, legs. Another customer later told press, it was raining fire when I was finishing to pay at the cash register. By miracle, I got out before they closed the doors. A little bit of a foreshadowing of what's about. Yeah, that's what we're about to talk about. Close the doors. Oh, yeah. Great question, Jamie. Thank you. (laughs) On that horrible August morning, Victor Daniel Paiva, who's again Juan's son and the guy whose job it is to make sure nobody steals from the baby, Juan's son Victor had arrived late for work because he had been buying his father tickets for an upcoming soccer match. This very likely saved his life because of where his office was located and where the explosion happened. But if it did save his life, his survival damaged many more people. Once he arrived on scene, within minutes of the explosion, Victor gave his first order to his security guards. Don't let them out without paying. Oh my god. Yeah. What? Yeah. Yeah. Holy shit. (laughs) I know, right? And the security guards didn't say fuck that. Oh, nope. No, it's kind Christ. of a we could talk about Germans here, um, but I think sure. everybody knows like the thing that people do when they're or, given baby. orders. Yeah, yeah. By the son of the baby. Yeah. Oh so my God. Victor was concerned that the hundreds of customers attempting to escape the Yucobolanius Botanica death trap Wouldn't would flee out of their the flaming exits <laughs> before yeah. leaving the flaming building. Yeah. He was okay. worried they were going to leave with arms full of groceries and consumer goods. Victor Not knew the this would enrage groceries. his father. <laughs> Jesus <laughs> Christ. So the idea that, to Victor that his dad might get angry at him for letting customers get out with free goods of his exploding supermarket was more important to him than the thoughts of the lives of the thousand people still inside. So he ordered his guards to close and bar all 10 exits to the store. Jesus Christ. Okay. Uh, yeah, and they do, and they do that. <laughs> they do the shit That's out it. of that. Okay, son of. I'm going to quote from a journalist in the the a local newspaper called Nation. Quote: 
Outside, in front of the hypermarket, Victor Daniel Paiva could not stop sweating. He called insistently on the phone for the employees to get the money out of the boxes, while dozens of people scratched the windows to get out. Oh, my God. (laughs) It's pretty bad, right? (laughs) This is, like, so... This is bad writing. This it's is horrible. bad writing. It's horrible. If you made a if you made a bad guy in like a movie or a TV do this, people would be like, nobody would like come and on. And then you're like, no, 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 wait. And they call the boss the baby. And yeah. they're like, Jesus, that's... don't let him out. They'll steal while Bill, the building is actively exploding. Yes. I'm now let's glitching. Okay. It's going to get so much worse, Jamie. Okay. Uh, but let's pause for just a moment. Let's pause for just a just a split second with that horrible vision in our heads of people scratching on the windows of a burning grocery store. Yeah. And let's have a little conversation about how money affects the human brain. Oh, okay. Yeah, you want to do that? You like that? You like talking about this? I love talking about how money affects the human brain. It's my it's my favorite thing to do. It's my kink. Me too, actually. There have been a lot of fun studies on this. Uh, For today's purposes, I want to start with a series of experiments conducted in 2006 by Dr. Kathleen Vos of the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota. She led a group of, actually, let me mispronounce Minnesota because I probably mispronounced something in Paraguay and I want to be fair. Minisati. Uh, In Minnesota, yeah, in the University of Minnesota. Now, she led a group of researchers to conduct nine experiments, all of which primed half of their students with thoughts of money. And I'm going to quote from Live Science about how they primed people to think about money. Mm. A few methods were used to get the participants thinking about money. In some experiments, a stack of play Monopoly money was within a subject's peripheral view, or a subject would unscramble word phrases dealing with money. While in others, a participant would sit in front of a computer screensaver showing pictures of floating money. So one, and again, they were not telling the, 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 the people who were being, who were the subjects of the experiment that money had anything to do with it. Like they were solving puzzles basically. Mm -hmm. And the experiment found that the group who had been primed to think about money persisted long longer at solving difficult puzzles than subjects who weren't. And that's probably not so surprising, right? The thought of money makes you willing to kind of like work harder, longer at an otherwise meaningless task. Sure. Um, And that's like not unsettling, right? It's pretty natural. Like it's normal. Yeah. Yeah. The other experiments were a bit more unsettling. Quote, in one test, a participant sat in a lab filling out a questionnaire when a supposed student walked into the room and said, can you come over here and help me? She explained that she was an undergraduate student and needed help coding data sheets, each of which would take five minutes. Some of the participants didn't help at all, Vos said. The control group volunteered an average of 42.5 minutes of their time, whereas the money group gave about 25 minutes. That's interesting. Mm. Another experiment gave participants the opportunity to lend a helping hand in a situation requiring no skills. In a staged accident, a random person walked through a room where a participant sat filling out a questionnaire and spilled a bunch of pencils. The money participants picked up far fewer pencils than the controls. To understand how money affects interpersonal relationships, the scientists told each participant they would have a conversation to acquaint themselves with another participant. While the experimenter went to retrieve the other subject, the participant was to set up two chairs for the engagement. The subjects in the money group put more physical distance between themselves and new acquaintances compared with control subjects. Again, uh, interesting stuff. Interesting yeah. stuff. Now, the write-up I found made a point of noting that the experimental results showed no difference as a result of socioeconomic status or gender of the participants. It seemed mm-hmm. like just pretty robust. The only real difference was who had been primed to think about money. Yeah. Which is, again, interesting. Now, this is just one study, obviously. So let's mm-hmm. talk about some other studies, because a lot of people have looked I love into this shit. All, all monopoly-based studies are very uh, funny and <laughs> terrifying, 
people just turn into cartoon villains when given a, a, they really a stack do. of Monopoly money. It's fun because the next study we're about to talk about is a UC Berkeley experiment that involved 100 pairs of strangers playing Monopoly with mm-hmm. one player getting double the money of the other. And I'm going to quote I've from a TED. I've heard of this one. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. I'm going to quote from a TED write-up of the psychologist behind the study, a guy named uh, Paul Piff. Quote, The rich players moved their pieces more loudly, banging them around the board and displayed a type of enthusiastic gestures that you see from a football player who's just scored a touchdown. They even ate more pretzels from a bowl setting off to the side than the players had been assigned to the poor condition and started to become ruder to their opponents. Moreover, the rich players' understanding of the situation was completely warped. After a game, they talked about how they'd earned their success, even though the game was blatantly rigged and their win should have been seen as inevitable. That's a really, really incredible insight into how the mind makes sense of advantage, Piff says. Yeah, it rocks. I agree. Did you Isn't see the vi- did you see the videos of it? The videos of it are very oh, no. very funny. It's just a uh, bunch of like scrawny college freshmen being like, "Well, you know, I did yeah, good." So that's I why I'm d- and then just like crunch crunch crunch. It's it's brutal but very funny i love that shit yeah another study in california which is the sensible place to go if you want to study rich people being assholes looked (laughs) into i find this one really interesting it looked into how likely drivers of expensive cars were to stop at crosswalks for pedestrians which they're legally required to do in california and they found that again i find this very fascinating the more expensive the car the less likely the driver was to stop for pedestrians. No mm. one driving, not a single person, because they studied the different categories of cars and they like categorize them by their cost. Not a single person driving cars in the least expensive car category failed to stop at a crosswalk. Wow. Almost, almost 50% of drivers in expensive cars did. <laughs> Yay, Corollas. We did <laughs> it, Corolla awesome? owners. Yeah. We did it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. If, and it, like, obviously, if you drive, you know that somebody in a 35 year old fucking Corolla is is going to let you in on the highway and someone driving an mm-hmm. infinity is going to run you and your children off the road if that's what it takes to get out, out of the exit three seconds faster. And then if you <laughs> see someone in a Tesla, they'll run you over, run mm-hmm. your family over and then ask oh, for yeah. a thank you. <laughs> My personal favorite thing I've seen just of the joys of living in West Los Angeles for a while was oh, to yeah. Lam- a Lamborghini rear-ending another Lamborghini. <laughs> <Just like laughs> it was a real let them fight moment. Yeah. I'm broadly Give fine guys, with all of this. Say, I forgot you lived in like the worst possible area for, for pedestrians yeah. to just get run over by tech millionaires. It was great. I had a lot of fun <laughs> jogging. Oddly enough, I will I will say this: not all rich people are this way. Because fun jogging, (laughs) I had I had Sean Penn uh, uh, would drive through my neighborhood a couple of times, and he was always very good about stopping and giving people time to move. So I'll say that about Sean Penn, a problematic man. I was like, he's a polite driver. He he. Congrats to Sean Penn for stopping. Not congrats to (laughs) Sean Penn for hitting women and marrying Val Kilmer's daughter. Yes. (laughs) I I love that marrying Val Kilmer's daughter is an equal crime to violence. (laughs) Violence against women is the is the worst crime. Marrying Val Kilmer's 25 year old daughter is (laughs) also not right to do. It's not. You know what is but right to do. He Robert? doesn't run down joggers. I'll give him that. <laughs> but but but, you, but but it's ad it's ad time. It's ad time. It's ad time. All right. 
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da 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 you know what i'm saying like it could have been like easier and a lot of people have asked me like how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple and what else was it gonna like that's what the song wanted thanks for listening to this episode of the crew call podcast on deadline there's plenty to celebrate in march and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. And we're returned. Uh, that was a good yeah, end. Good end. We're, what was really fun, because I did live in a very nice neighborhood. It was right on the edge of... Um, of Santa Monica. And the only way I could afford to, cause my rent was actually very cheap. I pay like 900 bucks a month, which is wow. cheap for that. Yeah. It's That's because the building was, was very illegal. The landlord had <laughs> illegally subdivided it. The, um, half of our power was the power, like came from the, the, another unit and half of their power came from our house. So like when mm. power would go out, we'd both lose half of our, like it was, <laughs> we had the city come in once and be like, you realize that like you could sue your landlord because of all of the dangerous fire hazards in this <laughs> apartment because of how illegally she subdivided it. And we said, yes, but here's how much we pay in rent. And they said, oh, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> Take your life in your hands every day makes total yeah. sense. Oh, yeah. No, I would risk my life, too, for a place that cheap. Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, God, what a great country. God, what the best best place in the world. No notes. Yeah. No, I'm still no, not, not over <laughs> Sean Penn. Oh, I hate Sean Penn. I'm glad I, he didn't I, he's, you he's a terrible person. The only way he could yeah. be worse is if he ran you over with his car. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Yep. There's yep. that. And so you upset Jamie. I'm sorry, Jamie. Nah, it's okay. I just, I, 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 I hate Sean Penn. 
That's yeah, all. and speaking of, you know what Sean Penn is? What? A rich person. It's Let's true. keep talking about how bad that is for you. All right. So, uh, uh, yeah, again, a, a, another study. Because, again, you know, reading one of these studies, there's things to criticize, you know, about all of them, as there are with all studies. Sure. But you keep reading all of the many studies that have been done on this, and they all make a very, very consistent point. Right. A 2010 study from UCSF asked 300 participants mixed between upper and lower income individuals to analyze facial expressions of people in photos and emotions of people in mock interviews. Mm. Poor people were consistently better at reading the emotions of others. But... This is neat. If upper class participants were told to imagine themselves in the position of poorer people, it boosted their ability to read other people's emotions. Oh. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Interesting, right? That's fascinating yeah. to me. Just encouraging. Now, there's a, you have to really hold yeah. a rich person's hand to get them to empathy. Yeah. Now, imagine other people were capable of feelings. <laughs> I know this is going to be hard for you. Uh, Just it's just a creative experiment. (laughs) Yeah. It's not real. It's not real. The poor don't feel. But imagine they did. But imagine they. (laughs) Oh, God. Okay. So there's a lot more uh, research on of this type out there. If you're interested in finding it to conclude this portion of the episode, I'd like to read one last quote from Dr. Piff summarizing a significant body of research into how wealth affects behavior. That's kind of this guy's deal. Okay. Quote. As a person's levels of wealth increase, their feelings of compassion and empathy go down, and their feelings of entitlement, of deservingness, and their ideology of self-interest increases. Mm. Neat, huh? Neat. Neat. Yeah. Now, let's return to the Uquabalano Botanica, the the supermarket actively in flames with its doors boarded. Uh, or yeah, yeah, and locked. While Victor and his guards kept the doors barred and rescued the precious cash from the registers. Again, he's actively getting money. the cash out while he's preventing human beings from exiting. That is absurd. I mean, but you have to imagine they're seizing the cash from yeah. the hands of customers and employees who are on mm-hmm. fire. <laughs> Like, okay. people are literally describing paying, being forced to pay for their groceries while fire rains from the ceiling. Yes, it's it's Jeez. it's fucking Christ. wild. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, well, uh, this goes on for a while, and eventually the ground floor of the supermarket collapses into an underground car park where dozens and dozens of people were trying to flee in their vehicles. Um, and, of course, those people all burned to death. The yeah. food court it was completely engulfed in flames. A lot of people were just incinerated. Cyanide gas given off by toxic paint used on the building's roof because they used poisonous paint that they weren't supposed to be using on the building's roof mm-hmm. began to suffocate panicked shoppers. The ones who were closest to the doors and windows started breaking them with whatever they could find. People outside the supermarket realized what was happening and sprang into action, gathering sticks and poles to try to batter down the locked main entrance. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Human beings who aren't pieces of shit do attempt to come to the rescue of their fellow human beings. Sure. As always happens. We'll keep talking about that. (laughs) Liliana Hernandez, who lived next door to the market, told reporters, we couldn't get inside and people couldn't get out. When the firefighters arrived, they too were stymied by the locked doors of the Yucobolanos, and eventually they had to go into Liliana's home and batter holes through the walls of her home in order to get into the supermarket. By the time they finally breached the building, there was little for them to drag out but corpses. I'm going to quote now from a write-up in The Guardian. Okay. Some victims were found hugging each other. One of them a woman with a small child in her arms, a firefighter told local radio. A disco opposite to the supermarket was being used as a makeshift morgue. 
Overnight, army troops unloaded truckloads of wooden coffins. Early today, tearful relatives were filing in to identify bodies. There are no words for this, said Orlando Correa, weeping after identifying the corpse of his six-month-old nephew. He then searched for his sister among the lines of charred bodies. This is a moment of great anguish, said the Paraguayan president, Nicanor Duarte, who declared three days of national mourning. Officials said it was the worst tragedy in Paraguay since a failed military insurrection in 1947 had left around 8,000 people dead. Francisco Barrios, who had been shopping at the store but managed to escape, told of a confusing scene minutes after the fire started, with people rushing for the doors. There were sparks as if fireworks were going off, he said. The store quickly caught fire and filled with smoke, triggering total confusion. I lost my wife and kids as I rushed to get out. Now I'm trying to find them. Oh, my God. By the time the fires were finally extinguished and the last charred corpse was identified, at least 424 people had died. That's about half of the folks who were in there. Yeah. 424 people. More than 300 were injured. Three quarters of the people in Yucobalaños Botanica at the time of the fire failed to make it out of the death trap of a market unharmed. Three quarters of the people in there. Now, obviously, a nightmare of this scale demands some sort of vengeance. And eyes immediately yeah. turned to Juan and Victor Paiva, both father and son, of course, denied that they had ordered the doors locked and barred. Victor immediately blamed the store operations manager, Vincente Ruiz, for giving the Jesus. order. Since Ruiz had died in the fire, he was a pretty I good was, scapegoat. No! I was like, please don't say he he blamed a person who burned mm-hmm. up when it was his fault. Mm-hmm. Holy shit. Yeah, it's it's it's... I don't know. I don't even know what to say. It is. It's horrible. It's, it's, it's uh, not good. It's that's I can't even like wrap my head around that. That's and, and just like a, a store so obscenely large to have no oversight is. Yeah, so it's, absurd. It's, I it's pretty good, Jamie. I, <laughs> like, I, like, I, I know mean, like I say that, but like I was fucking in tears reading some of these stories. Like horrifying. so many little kids burnt to death in the arms of their mothers trying to shield them from the flames. Dozens of them. Like yeah. an out like like this is this is like a war crime level tragedy, mm-hmm. but it was a supermarket fire. <laughs> like <laughs> Like you could, it couldn't be a more unsuspecting group of people. And they're, you have to imagine all like ordinary. Uh, I just, I can't even wrap my head around that. That's mm-hmm. so, f- and, and then they, and then they blamed someone that they had killed. Yeah. Oh, it's like, okay. It's honestly, I think to most people. It is an incomprehensible I, level of evil. Like, and, yeah. and in fairness, to most people who own supermarkets, it's like, That's, you have insurance. Why are you? Fucking- it's like, it's one thing if you're like, you know, b- fucking big oil did something mm-hmm. like that. But it's a supermarket. I, you, I mean, I guess Jeff Bezos are, owns a supermarket, but I, but super, I, I don't think of supermarket are, owners as super villains. You're watching dying people pound on the windows of your store as you rescue their cash. Like it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I just the 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 also just like the level of brain dead. Like yeah, wait. <laughs> How does he think he's going to get away with that? He's like, well, at least yeah. I'll have escape money. At least I'll have the escape money. It's 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 supervillain, like cartoon supervillain. Like, yeah. not honestly, not because a cartoon supervillain wouldn't do this. No, they would they like, would disappear. Captain Planet villains had more nuance 
uh, it's amazing. Um, Ugh. yeah. So these, they obviously, they get charged with gross negligence and a bunch of other crimes alongside four security guards. Okay. From jail, Juan issued a proposition to rebuild his supermarket and make the families of the victims into shareholders. He also offered to give them jobs, which some might call a mixed offer at best. Oh. <laughs> He really is like the world's dumbest person. There's yeah. Oh God, the son, the rich people are horrible, but the children of rich people are worse because yeah. they don't they don't even have a skill. It's that's fucking that's so. I I can't wrap my head around this story. This is so it's, fucked up. It's pretty fun. So yeah. Paraguayans were not enticed by the proposition of a store to profit the families of the dead people. No uh, they, <laughs> that's a very hardcore libertarian answer for like, well, what if we just make a store that they can profit from that we build over the ashes of where their loved ones died in my supermarket fire. <laughs> Could be a fun second act. <laughs> yeah. Really, Amazing. Really yeah. It's the kind of thing you do if other people aren't people to you, you right. know? Right. Yeah. Right. Yes. Uh, so yeah, they the, the obviously the people of Paraguay of uh, Ansocion were not enticed by this proposition. They uh, they filled the streets of the capital with graffiti uh, decrying the Paivas as murderers. In December of 2006, Juan Victor and one security guard were convicted of manslaughter, receiving maximum sentences of five years. Oh. Several company shareholders had been tried for negligence, and they were all acquitted. This did not make people happy, and, uh, no, and the citizens five of years is fucking nothing. No. Yeah, it's it. Are, they killed four hundred and twenty-four people. Are you kidding me? They like, should be killed in the town square. Yeah, they should be publicly executed. Yeah. I'm okay with that in this case. Yeah. Oh my god. Now, the people of Asuncion, led by a family member of the dead, immediately rioted through the streets, breaking things, lighting police cars on fire, doing totally justified shit. Right. Yeah. This is absolutely the time to riot. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. We can debate over what justifies a riot. This sure does. This is the, you know, this is the, the yardstick to use. Yeah. This, I mean, this is like the clearest justification I can imagine. A lot of things justify riots, but for sure this, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, they, they, they rioted and eventually the government was, was forced to retry the case because people lit enough cars on fire. Oh, good. Well, that's might see, be a lesson there. Lighting cars on fire gets, <laughs> get, accomplishes things. One could argue that. You One know, could I mean it's just it's, it certainly did in this case. You know, I, I light like, cars on fire in Minecraft, and it's yeah. really accomplished a lot locally. It it got the job done here, sort sure of, uh, okay. to, better than things had been before. Juan was resentenced to twelve years in prison, Victor to ten, the security guard to five, oh. and one company shareholder was sentenced to two and a half years. That's which, still, yeah. yeah, you know, it's better. It's still like. Not, How many you know, cars need to be set on fire to get a reasonable sentence? Jesus Christ. That's exactly Christ. what the people of Paraguay are. Yeah. Oh, okay, they had good. been agitating for a 25-year sentence, which is the maximum that like they're like uh, is, okay. is allowed. Um, now, one of the leaders that evolved out of the protest movement was a guy named Dr. Roberto Almiron. He treated many of the burn victims of the fire, all the while unaware that his own son had perished in the blaze. Um, oh. So you see why this guy. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Dr. Almiron told reporters, this is the country we have where the institutions do not fulfill their function, where the businessmen are capable of creating a crematorium for innocence. A drawer with two doors is a roof of a carafe enclosed with fences and jail-like bars for a few dollars, just in a country with an absent state where assistance to the victims was only media and temporary. After that, everything remained the same. The same country where the judiciary and the municipality itself are buildings that do not have a fire escape, devoid of values in a terminal state. God. I mean, he's talking like, yeah, I think we can all identify with what he's saying, right? Yeah. 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 The, the state and the judiciary are buildings with no fire escape. Yes. I don't. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, what an unfortunate metaphor, but I, Mm -hmm. I I see what he's saying. Yeah. Uh, The lyrics of a rap song broadcast on Paraguayan television after the verdict were more succinct. Let no one leave without paying. And so it was. They paid with their lives. Yeah. Yep. Well, that's fucking devastating. (laughs) You know what's not devastating, Jamie? What? (laughs) Products and services. Products. And that's, you know, I I think that that if there's anything we just learned, it's that the power of products and services. (laughs) That's what's going to pull us through as a people. That's what's going to save us is products and or or services. And or services. All right. I'm so sorry. Here's ads. (laughs) BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and Starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Allison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Allison. Thank you. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Thank you. 
National Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. We're back. We're back. We're talking about how funny it is that attorney general, the plural of it is, is attorneys general. Attorneys, and we were yeah. talking about son's glass it's very it's very silly to me i know it's correct grammar but it's silly if i clone sunny it's son's glasses son's Mm -hmm. wait is it son's glass son's attorney's general son's Mm -hmm. glass mother's fuck they should (laughs) they should really change that (laughs) yeah it's funny you know it's not funny jamie Oh no! Whatever you're about to say for the next well, hour, the 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 Equibolano supermarket fire was not was not funny. It was, it was a nightmarish tragedy enabled by greedy shareholders, a craven manager, complicit security guards, and a profoundly selfish company founder, Juan Paiva. Uh, I meant what I said earlier. Juan is not the primary bastard of today's story. Our bastard <sighs> is instead a phenomenon, a concept, the deadly serious thing that he represents in his actions. Mm-hmm. It's a phenomenon sociologists call elite panic okay yep it sounds like a uh boutique store where they charged to where they charged 40 dollars for a pair of socks but what is it well it's a term that was coined by sociologists karen chess and lee clark of rutgers university in a 2008 study they published under the title elites in panic more to fear than fear itself it opens with these words Sociological research on how people respond to disasters has been going on for more than 50 years. From that research comes one of the most robust conclusions in sociology. Panic is rare. And of course, they mean that panic from regular people directly affected by a disaster is extremely rare. The normal human behavior, regardless of body count, type, or duration of tragedy, is compassion and collective action. Mutual aid is far more common than panic. Think of the people outside of the Yucobolano supermarket, right? The ones who rush to help their fellow human beings by trying to batter down the doors with poles that they found nearby. Mm-hmm. That's a bunch of people. One person made the decision to lock the doors, you know? Right. Like, yeah. so, that, so the argument that mutual aid is, is the more natural instinct than mm-hmm. the panic. Okay. Is the documented by extensive research most common reaction of people in disasters. Think okay. of the people during Hurricane Katrina who used their boats to search for food and other supplies in abandoned stores that mm-hmm. they could then distribute to their fellow citizens in need. Mm-hmm. A lot of times they were called looters by the news. You know, <laughs> it's like the people being like, well, this place is flooding everything and it's going to go bad and people are hungry. Perhaps no, no, we should no, no, take no. the they food out of it. They sold that. Don't you They understand? didn't pay for it. Yeah. It is It is the same instinct that led to that, all of those people burning to death in the Yucobolanos. It's like, yeah. well, but they're not paying. Yeah. Like, like, it doesn't matter that it's all wasted because the building's on fire or flooded. They're not, they're not paying, you know? Who would they pay? <laughs> the store is yeah, Who would they water. pay? <laughs> There's no one to pay. Uh, <sighs> now, the main argument of Chess and Clark's study is that governments should include the citizenry more in their disaster plans rather than assuming danger will cause the citizenry to collapse into an unruly mob who need to be controlled by armed men. Because that's basically all government plans for disaster is like everyone's going to panic and the cops will have to beat them into responding properly, right? Like yeah. that's how we, yeah, or the National Guard or whatever. <sighs> Quote, yeah, classic, a classic yeah. approach. 
classic elites. Yeah. Berkland, who has conducted extensive, he's another researcher, who has conducted mm-hmm. extensive research on the matter, argues that the disaster plans of policymakers and emergency management personnel assume it is likely, it being panic. Planners and policymakers sometimes act as if the human response to threatening conditions is more dangerous than the threatening conditions themselves. Politically, the problem of panic endures because, as Tierney argues, who's another researcher, it resonates with institutional interests. Operating on the assumption that people panic in disasters leads to a conclusion that disaster preparation means concentrating resources, keeping information close to the vest, and communicating with people in soothing ways, even if the truth is disquieting. As Tierney points out, such an approach advances the power of those at the top of organizations. Oh, okay. Okay. Good stuff. This is, yeah, this is tracking, but you don't hear it phrased this way a lot. All scans in a 2006. And again, one of the fun things about this is that, like, there's very little disagreement uh, about from like people who study disasters on this subject. Interesting. In a 2006 study of disaster responses conducted by Dr. Clark, they noted rather cautiously that disaster plans only ever assume panic on behalf of the general public. People in positions of authority, including the cops, are assumed to keep a cool head at all times. The powerless, not the powerful, are said to panic. But the reality is generally the exact opposite. (laughs) It's great. It fucking rules. If only we had a ton of documented evidence of this being exactly the case. If only people had devoted their lives to proving that this was not the the case. Quote, the image of panic is generally associated with large numbers of people and elites do not congregate, making it hard to transfer the image of panic to them. One does not see collections of chief executive officers amassed in a stadium. And so it is unlikely that a story will ever appear about CEO panic in response to a soccer stadium fire. Still, this is not a sufficient explanation for panic to be so rarely attributed to people in positions of authority. For one could, in principle, explain the actions of chief executives, heart surgeons, army generals, or university officials by alleging that they panicked in certain situations. Yet, such explanations remain rare. So, Jamie, let's yeah. talk about some of those examples. Oh, we opened no. this this episode with the story of a CEO panicking, and I think perhaps we should talk about an army general panicking next. Okay. Yeah, let's get a wide genre of people yeah. in power losing their shit. Losing their fucking minds. Yeah. <laughs> At 5.12 a.m., On April 18th, 1906, the city of San Francisco suffered a massive earthquake. For a full minute, the ground shook, tossing tall buildings to the ground like discarded Legos, cracking the streets, breaking gas lines, crumpling streetcars. It also sent chimneys crumbling to the ground. And when one mixes falling chimneys with punctured gas lines, it's perhaps not surprising that the next thing to strike San Francisco was a titanic fire. By the time it was done, 28,000 structures had been incinerated, and nearly five square miles of the city was just gone. More than 3,000 people died. And obviously, like, this is 1906. We're never going to know the fucking death toll. Yeah. Um, half half the city was left homeless. People couldn't like, even count to 5,000 back then. No, no, it's no. They hadn't no. invented they numbers, numbers larger than 3,000. That's why it was 3,000. Right. They're like, oh, well, we've yeah. topped out. I guess everyone's yeah. dead. We had our sci- scientists were trying to count to see how high numbers went, but they kept dying of old age at 3,000. <laughs> so that was the that was the ceiling of numbers at this point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, old timey uh, people. Well, this is very, that said, this is very sad. Uh, it's a so, horrible disaster. Yeah. Yes. Thankfully, they're further away from us in time, so it's it's easier to. So you're to, like, but their clothes were so silly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, distance creates sociopathy, which is why the rich and powerful 
act the way they do ah. and why we're going to tell jokes about a fire that killed 3,000 people in San Francisco. So we're the we're problem. distant from it. Yeah. We are, every, human beings are the problem, yes. Yeah. Power is the problem. Hierarchy is the problem. Distance mm-hmm. is the problem. But anyway, so half of the city's left homeless, which is exactly the sort of situation you'd expect to generate a tremendous amount of panic. There are walls of fire eating the city. People's <laughs> homes are gone. They've just had an earthquake. Yeah, you would expect panic, right? Like that, yeah. That, that, yeah. Instead, The very opposite occurred. In her masterpiece, A Paradise Built in Hell, Rebecca Solnit tells the story of Miss Anna Amelia Holhauser, Mm -hmm. a middle-aged woman whose home wound up in the path of the fire. So she loses her house and she winds up, she travels calmly uh, with thousands of other people to Golden Gate Park, where they like are able to hide from the fire, basically. And she pretty much immediately decides to establish a mutual aid kitchen. Quote, Holhauser started a tiny soup kitchen with one tin can to drink from and one pie plate to eat from. All over the city, stoves were hauled out of damaged buildings. Fire was forbidden indoors, since many standing homes had gas leaks or damaged flues or chimneys or primitive stoves were built out of rubble. And people commenced to cook for each other, for strangers, for anyone in need. Her generosity was typical, even if her initiative was exceptional. Holhauser got funds to buy eating utensils across the bay in Oakland. The kitchen began to grow, and she was soon feeding two to three hundred people a day. Not a victim of the disaster, but a victor over it, and the hostess of a popular social center, her brother's and sister's keeper. Some visitors from Oakland liked her makeshift dining camp so well they put up a sign, Palace Hotel, naming it after the burned-out downtown luxury establishment that was reputedly once the largest hotel in the world. That's and amazing. This, this was the norm. She was one of hundreds of and thousands of people who made like one of the stories that, uh, that she tells in this book is of like a local cop who the earthquake hits. He sees people looting, and instead of doing anything about that, he starts a kitchen to feed people. Like and yeah, like acting because that's empathy? what people do. Yeah, that's, that's what, yeah. Even wow. cops when they're at ground zero say, can act that way. Big yeah. moment for cops. Nineteen oh six cops. They weren't trained yet, so that was helpful. Yeah, um, yeah. That's that's incredible. Yeah, mutual aid networks were. Incredibly common in San Francisco. Butchers opened up their shops and started handing out free meat en masse for kitchens like the Palace Hotel to turn into stew because they were like, well, it's going to go bad. We might as well just give it away to people. Mm -hmm. And like there were some large butcher shops who stopped, but there were at least a couple of very large like businesses that were like massive butcher who were who not only gave away their meat, but used their employees and resources and vehicles to try to to cart it around the city for free to hand out to people. Sure. So again, again, we're not I'm not saying that like rich people businesses always react the way that the Yucobolanos guy did because they were at ground zero of the disaster. They were affected by it and they immediately right. sue like my house is gone too, my city's fucked up like this isn't about money. People need to eat. Yeah, it's, I mean, very different situation, but I feel like we've even seen some of that this year in like areas that are highly affected by COVID where some businesses that you're like, oh, I wouldn't have expected this business to to have stepped it up, but they're just in the middle of it. So it it makes more sense that they would actually do something. Yeah. During the worst of the of the the police and federal riots in Portland, there was Mm -hmm. a free rib restaurant that started and was given like donated like three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And then there was an armed coup that took it over. But like. That's a long story. (laughs) I look forward. I look forward. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. 
It was uh, this is like, but again, like this is just what people started doing. They started collect yeah. people like groups of young men spontaneously organized to pick through the ruins and ruins of stores and buildings to grab warm clothing, blankets, medicine, and food that they could then take back and give away to their fellow people to whoever needed it. Selling of such items was all but unheard of during this period. As one man who operated a mutual aid food delivery wagon later recalled, and the reason he did this is because he had a horse and a cart, and he was like, "Well, obviously, the thing I should do is use." my resources to give food to people for free, right? Sure, yeah. Yeah. As this guy said, quote, no questions were asked, no investigations were attempted. Whatever the applicant required was given to him or her if I had it, and the plan seemed to work excellently. Again, no means testing, no, do you really need this? Just like, you say you need this, here you go. Yeah. Here you go. Like, here you fucking go. This is what I have. You know, if I have it, it's yours. Mm Mm-hmm. Despite the horrors of the quake and the fire, many San Franciscans who survived described the city in this period as something of a utopia, with people coming together to take care of each other in a way that everyone seemed to find more fulfilling than their daily lives had been. The writer Mary Austin noted that the people of her city became houseless, but not homeless. For it comes to this with the bulk of San Franciscans, that they discovered the place and the spirit to be home, rather than the walls and the furnishings. No matter how the insurance totals foot up, what landmarks, what treasures of art are vanished, San Francisco, our San Francisco, is all there yet. Fast as the tall banners of smoke rose up and the flames reddened them, rose up with it something impalpable, like an exhalation. That's really beautiful. I feel bad I Isn't made that? fun I made, I feel I feel bad yeah. that I made fun of them ten minutes yeah. ago. It's beautiful. They, you know, the tech industry wasn't there yet, so people were better. You know? I was going to say, you know, before Zuckerberg got there, yeah. it sounds like a beautiful place. There was a community spirit at one point. Yeah. <laughs> Not, I'm sorry, San Franciscans. I know a lot of people who will, yeah, anyway. Yeah. Uh, we people doing the right thing in San Francisco, keep, keep doing it because there's, yeah. there's not enough of you. Yeah, or there's too many of the other ones. Yeah. yeah. So hundreds of plumbers worked free for a full week to like stop broken pipes so that like there wouldn't mm-hmm. be water flooding everywhere. One automobile dealership lent all of its cars out as ambulances for the sick and wounded. Was just like, here, take uh. all of our fucking cars as ambulances. Like, you do whatever with them. Like, like, we trust that you will use them as they need to be used. Clearly, people need vehicles right now. Right. The manager of the dealership later gave a quote to a reporter that was essentially an early summary of the concept of elite panic. I find this fascinating. Quote, All the big hotels, such as the St. Francis, the Palace, and others, were filled with Eastern and other tourists who seemed to have lost their heads entirely. Indeed, the only really scared people that I can remember having seen through the first three days of the fire were people of this class. In many cases, these would come to the garage, offering to pay any price for the use of an automobile that would take them out of the city. However, we absolutely refused to accept money from any such applicant. And as long as we saw that the petitioner was able to walk, we refused to furnish a machine. Hell yeah. Fuck yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's already the, the rich people trying to prioritize their needs over yeah. people. Who yeah. Over yeah. ambulances. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fucking great. Jeez. The people of San Francisco, by and large, did not panic. Mm-hmm. But Brigadier General Frederick Funston, the commanding officer of the Presidio military base, was a different story. According to Rebecca Solnit, he, quote, perceived his job as saving the city from the people rather than saving the people from the material city of cracked and crumbling buildings, fallen Mm. power lines, and towering flames. Uh, So what other people saw is it millennial good fellowship, which is one of the things, ways that like the spirit in San Francisco is described. Funston and others in power saw as a mob to be repressed and a flock to be herded. Huh. Sounds familiar. So Funston... 
Yeah. Funston did the only thing that a guy with an army at his beck and call generally thinks to do, which is send soldiers in about it. Now, he had no legal right to do this because it's illegal to do this without under very specific circumstances. Um, But he forced the city under martial law again illegally. Now, in Funston's eyes, the civilians who picked their way through ruined shops to save precious food before it spoiled were not engaging in mutual aid. They were, in his words, an unlicked mob. Oh licked meaning God. like they haven't been beaten you know you gotta, you we need to beat them, them to stop this you gotta <laughs> yeah. spank these these lawbreakers yep the okay. city mayor eugene schmitz was a working class labor union supporting populist but he wound up reacting no differently than funston a man whose prior work experience had mostly consisted of violently suppressing the international workers of the world a quasi-anarchist workers union yeah now mayor schmitz issued a proclamation The federal troops, the members of the regular police force, and all special police officers have been authorized by me to kill any and all persons found engaged in looting or in the commission of any other crime. No, wait. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) People are feeding each other and he's like, shoot him. (laughs) Again, this is the populist working class labor union supporting mayor. This is. Because it's just what happens when you're in power. Power is bad. (laughs) That yeah. that's a that is a, a more extreme example than I was expecting. <laughs> it's Holy pretty shit. great, right? Just do yeah. a fucking heel turn on Just everything you stand for. Shoot them all. Actually, yeah. I've had a change of heart. Kill them. Like you what know, when the, the looting fuck? starts, the shooting starts because, as we all know, property is the same as human life. Uh yeah. When you mm-hmm. once you get uh, once you're in charge of a lot of property, that is yep. just how you start to think. Wow. Yeah. That's a that's a that's a bad cool. one. That's Isn't a that great. Yeah. Well, obviously, uh, being again, people following orders, the federal troops did as they were told. As Solnit writes, quote, in treating the citizens as enemies, the occupying armies drove residents and volunteers away from scenes where fire could be prevented. In many parts of the city, only those who eluded the authorities by diplomacy, stealth, or countering invocation of authority were able to fight the blaze. Those who did saved many homes and work sites. There are no reliable figures on mortality in the earthquake, but the best estimates are that about 3,000 died, mostly from the earthquake itself. One historian suspects that as many as 500 citizens were killed by the occupying forces. Another estimates 50 to 75. Again, we'll never know because when they would shoot people, they would throw their corpses into burning buildings. Oh. Again, this is the U.S. Army. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. Good stuff. Holy shit. Okay. Yep. So that that 3,000 number, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Again, who knows how many people they actually shot to death. Sure. The soldiers didn't only kill people. In many cases, they made the fire worse. So, you know, you have these fires raging through the city. And one of the things you do in that situation is you would demolish a bunch of buildings in order to create a fire break, right? It's the same thing You, if you've got like a fire in the woods, you might like like burn down you might do a controlled burn to destroy like a a strip of trees in order to like create a break that the fire that's is uncontrolled can't spread through it's a pretty normal strategy it's a fine strategy and would be demolishing buildings to stop a fire not a bad thing to do when you have a situation like this Mm -hmm. however when you are doing this in a massive urban fire dynamite is the preferred or at least at that point was the preferred thing to use because dynamite is less likely to start fires outside of the blast area just because of the way that dynamite works okay instead the soldiers used barrels of gunpowder no <laughs> and again you're just like this is the army this is supposed yeah. to be the they're supposed you to know, know this that. but they're again, supposed to know yeah. that 
And you probably shit. have dynamite because you're the army. I was just right? like, where was all the dynamite at? Yeah. <laughs> Spoken um, for? Obviously, the army's failures like massively spread fires and destroyed thousands of buildings that might have otherwise been saved. I oh really do God. recommend reading. Like, And there's, there's other shit that they did, too. Like, one of the things that's most fucked up but maybe least obvious is that they started establishing soup kitchens to feed people and uh. in some cases like yeah pushing other ones out of operation but when the military did it everyone got like ration cards and you had a very strict limited set that you could get and you could only come in and it was like they were basically like it, it, they were almost like treated as prisoners while they were getting their food and stuff because they didn't want to encourage dependency by giving out too much free food or making it be pleasant as opposed to the mutual aid kitchens that were like yeah, eat, eat your fill you know yeah like eat what you d- take what you yeah. need and people will yeah. do that that yeah i yeah i didn't i honestly i didn't know that uh yeah. about this book and i'm a soul knit head she's great yeah i have no idea yeah. what this book this is, is awesome. one of my very favorite books i really do recommend reading a paradise built in hell she goes into Excellent. tremendous and fascinating and it's again for fairness like the army did other stuff that was like they they organized like medical like ambulances and shit like there were good things that soldiers did and that like individual local leaders did mm-hmm. but there were a lot of bad things and i it, in my head yeah. it kind of outweighs the good um yeah it, it, it's it, solnit's book has been very influential it's i think uh, uh was influential in one of my favorite books tribe by sebastian younger which mm-hmm. delves into some of the same topics um is more okay. about ptsd but talks a lot about why like um why u.s soldiers probably suffer ptsd at a higher rate than any other soldiers in the history of warfare and it, it his the kind of conclusion he comes to is that it's because of the society they come home to rather than the specific details of modern combat huh. um it's because of how fucked civilization is it's because like when you break down is when you head home to an empty apartment you know it's not when you're out in the field with your buddies and shit it's when you come home and you're in an empty building the way that we tend to live alone and isolated then you shatter into a thousand pieces anyway Mm -hmm. also a good book try relatable content yeah solnit's book has been very influential to a number of people who i think are pretty darn smart one example would be Cory doctorow who i I like Mm, quite a lot um yeah and he wrote this on the subject of elite panic quote Elites tend to believe in a venal, selfish, and essentially monstrous version of human nature, which I sometimes think is their own human nature. I mean, people don't become incredibly wealthy and powerful by being angelic, necessarily. They believe that only their power keeps the rest of us in line, and that when it somehow shrinks away, our seething violence will rise to the surface. That was very clear in Katrina. Timley, Garden Ash, and Maureen Dowd, and all these other people immediately jumped on the bandwagon and started writing commentaries based on the assumption that the rumors of mass violence during Katrina were true. A lot of people have never understood that the rumors were dispelled and that those things didn't actually happen. It's Mm -hmm. tragic. Now, I found another write-up in Commentary Magazine that continues Dr. O's line of thought with more concrete examples, both from Katrina and from our present disaster. Okay. Quote, Elite panic frequently brings out another unsavory quirk on the part of some authorities, a tendency to believe the worst about their own citizens. In the midst of the Hurricane Katrina crisis in 2005, New Orleans Mayor Ray Nagin found time to go on Oprah Winfrey's show and lament hooligans killing people, raping people in the Superdome. Public officials in the media credulously repeated rumors about street violence, snipers shooting at helicopters, and hundreds of bodies piled in the Superdome. These all turned out to be wild exaggerations or falsehoods, arguably tinged by racism. But the stories had an impact. Away from the media's cameras, a massive rescue effort made up of freelance volunteers, Coast Guard helicopters, and other first responders was underway across the city. But city officials, fearing attacks on rescuers, frequently delayed these operations. They ordered that precious space in boats and helicopters be reserved for armed escorts. 
Jesus Christ. If that doesn't sum up America, failing to rescue people because you needed more room for guns is like, <laughs> yup. <laughs> we famously yep. love guns more than we love our own citizens. That's, so, uh, that's such a strange thing to even he- like hear repeated back mm-hmm. because it's like, I mean, in, in certain uh, circles, it's like known that that is not something that happened. But I, I clearly remember when I was a, a kid when that was happening, that being just fully the only coverage you would really see. It was like that first off, there there was a horrific tragedy. And second off, that the citizens were being blamed for a thing. Like that was so... There was more of that, and you didn't really hear the other side at all. Nope. Yeah. No, why would you? Again, it's the same yeah. thing that is Twitter's purpose, which is so that you can tell a lie and then correct it with the truth, but nobody reads that second tweet. But no one you reads. <laughs> it's there. Yeah. It's all there. It's there, but we don't read it. No. I'm going to continue that quote from Commentary Magazine as it moves into the present day. Too okay. often, the need to avoid panic serves as a retroactive justification for all manner of official missteps. In late March, as the coronavirus pandemic was climbing towards its crest in New York City, Mayor Bill de Blasio appeared on CNN's State of the Union to defend his record. Host Jake Tapper pressed the mayor on his many statements as recently as two weeks earlier, urging New Yorkers to go about their lives. Tapper asked whether those statements were at least in part to blame for how the virus is spread across the city. De Blasio didn't give an inch. Everybody was working with the information we had, he explained, and trying, of course, to avoid panic. How advising people to avoid bars and Broadway shows would have been tantamount to panic was left unexplained. And again, yeah, it's the same thing, right? Yeah. If people had shut down earlier, it would have meant less money. It's locking the doors and saving the money from the cash registers while people burn to death. That's the, it's yeah. the same thing. They yeah. all do it. Just yeah. over the period of days and months instead. And then people still praise de Blasio for his, yeah. you know, whatever. Fuck him. Such he's a piece bullshit. of shit. Fuck he did he's, a terrible he's job. A, he's a monster. Like he's... He, uh, yeah. Uh, they're, yeah. They're all, they're all trash. That's the point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like... And the fact that he's better than someone who has actively pretended that the virus isn't a problem doesn't say anything good about him. It just no, me, it's the like bar, the bar is beneath the floor. The bar is in the parking yeah. garage. Like it's, it's like if you step on a rusty rake and it goes through your foot and then the person 10 feet away steps on a landmine like like you're like, well, I'm glad I didn't step on the landmine, but you're not happy. You know, <laughs> like, but I'm still going to die if I didn't get my yeah. tetanus shot. Yeah, you there, still have a problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. Vote right, tetanus yeah. rake in 2020. Wow. <laughs> tetanus rake v. Landmine. Well, this is <laughs> the election this horror- of our lives. Well, this- <laughs> it's like, well, th- well, this is this horrifying metaphor has has really come full circle. Thank you. Now, yeah. that Commentary Magazine article goes into detail about another disaster, a 9.2 magnitude earthquake off the Alaskan coast in March of 1962. Anchorage, the state's largest city, was devastated. Thousands were rendered homeless. Whole neighborhoods fell off of cliff sides. And then the thing that happens in every disaster happened, people spontaneously organized search and rescue teams to find their trapped neighbors. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the people in charge panicked. In order to protect local businesses from looting, the police immediately deputized a crowd of volunteers, many of whom had been drinking in bars in instant, like right before the quake hit. So they like, find a, a bunch of drunk men and give them armbands with the word police written on them in lipstick. No! No! <laughs> no! Uh, it's very funny. Yeah. They also gave a lot of them I... guns. <laughs> But it's Alaska. Everybody was already packing. I mean, let's be honest here. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. 
Yeah. Okay. Now, in doing this, cops were acting in accordance with the science of the day, as embodied by the work of social scientist Richard Titmus. Which, let's just okay. let's take a moment for Titmus. Like Titmus. Titmus. It's like a boob-based Christmas. I was about to say that's right? a f- that yeah. sounds like either yeah. a really terrible disease or a yeah. really fun. Oh, she's got Christmas. the Titmus. Yeah. Oh, yeah. the Titmus. Or, or yeah. Mary Titmus, and then you're like, it's very oh, aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So he believed uh, Titmus <laughs> believed that any major disaster would cause quote a mass outbreak of hysterical neurosis among the civilian population. Huh. Civilians traumatized by death and destruction, he thought, would behave like frightened and unsatisfied children. The only way t- for authorities to avoid such horror was to use force and the threat of force immediately. And again. This was very heavily influenced over the Cold War, right? People are, everyone right. in the government's thinking, what's going to happen when the nukes fall? And the assumption is everyone will panic and we'll have to shoot a bunch of them in order to maintain order. Mm-hmm. The fucked up thing about this is they don't even have the excuse of like, well, they didn't know at the time. They hadn't done as much research. The the bombing of London had happened. Like the blitz had occurred. Right. And they'd had, <laughs> going into the blitz, we talk about this and it could happen here. Younger talks about it in Tribe. Going into the blitz, everyone had expected that the entire city would panic and people would be like eating each other and like committing rape and murder. And mm-hmm. instead, everyone did the thing people always do in disasters and took care of each other. Co- yeah, um, collectively cared. Okay. But nobody listened. You know, no, no one no one in charge paid attention because they just can't imagine that that's the case. It's it fucking well, it, 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 You have to imagine it, it actively benefits them to make people afraid yeah. of each other yeah yes absolutely because yeah. then other things might happen that they wouldn't like yeah. so the elite panic over the possible chaos outweighed any obligation to protect the citizens of anchorage the police chief immediately suspended the search for survivors in the rubble like because he's worried about chaos no we don't have time to look for any survivors like we have to get these lipstick cops out on the street <laughs> give guns to more drunks that's what's gonna protect people Okay, I would see a movie called Lipstick Cops. Lipstick Cops, to be absolutely. Fair, we would Especially all see it. Especially if they're police who only police the quality of people's use of lipstick. Right. And those But those with the same violence YouTube. as modern cops. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> with, with the same amount of uh, baseless judgment and violence yeah. as a modern like cop. Like SWAT teams just opening up in Los Angeles malls. There's Ugh. there's whole corners of YouTube deve- uh, yeah. devoted to this this very lipstick coppery. Not after the lipstick cops get in it, there won't be. They'll be purged. <laughs> so... Yeah. So again, everyone in charge, a lot of them at least panic. Uh, The people, of course, do not. And since the police chief has called off the search for survivors, the citizens of Anchorage spontaneously organize groups of citizens and pull every single survivor from the ruins. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they had done it by the time the police chiefs like like by the well, like while the police chief was like panicking about chaos, like people were actively like finishing the search for survivors. Like it's very funny. Quote, by the morning after the quake, more than 200 volunteers were jammed inside the Anchorage public safety building and they brought equipment, earth movers and dump trucks lined the street outside. Two volunteers took it upon themselves to organize the crowd. They wrote down names and skills, carpenters, plumbers, electricians, and started matching people to the tasks that were pouring in. Somebody hung up a sign, manpower control. In little more than 12 hours, the gangs of shadow passers by pulling victims from the wreckage had turned into a workforce where authorities expected panicked crowds instead they found gung-ho volunteers skilled workers asking only to be pointed towards jobs that needed doing in the end and this is the writing of a social scientist named Mualam who studied this in the end this diffuse wave of unofficial first responders had reclaimed almost all the city's engine dead before nightfall on Friday morning all over the city ordinary people urged surged into action teaming up and switching on like a kind of civic immune response which is how Mualam describes this, which I, I really find interesting. I like that, yeah. Yeah. 
When reporters from what Alaskans call outside began reaching the city, many were openly ex- uh, skeptical of the low fatality numbers being reported by Davis's search crews. At first, 12 were believed to be lost, but survivors kept turning up. Eventually, the Anchorage death toll settled at an almost miraculous five people. Wow. So thankfully, not another supermarket fire. Right. Now, this yeah. situation fascinated a team of social scientists from Ohio State University who arrived a day and a half after the disaster. And they were, they were studying people's disaster response under funding from the U.S. Army because the military, like it was the Cold War. Again, the defense industry had a deep and abiding interest of knowing, like, if there's a mass disaster in a city, how do people react? Right. Um, and they had the military had sent them there basically being like, tell us how they panic. Like, so we can figure out ways to, like, violently corral the citizenry once they panic in a disaster. Oh, God. Um, They're like, so please, these guys give are, us some blame tactics. We're yeah, always looking for th- new material here. Yeah, give us, give us, like, who, tell us who we need to shoot next time this happens. They suck, right? <laughs> yeah. They suck. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> tell us how bad they sucked. Yeah. Researchers, though, like, again, they, they come, so they come expecting chaos and violence, and instead they find, like people taking care of each other the way they always do. Mm. Researchers approached citizen after citizen in the work groups and asked them each variations of the same question. Who told you to do this? And the answer always boiled down to nobody. (laughs) Someone needed to do this. So here I am. I'm I'm a person. (laughs) Yeah. I'm a person doing the the thing that people do. I'm out here doing the bare minimum. What about you? Yeah. Yeah, why aren't you fucking helping? Get, put the fucking clipboard yeah. down, dude. What kind of question is that? <laughs> yeah. God. Yeah, there's people who are hurt. Like, what do you fucking mean, what am I, who told me to do this? Yeah. <laughs> Quote from commentary. The team stayed for a week and interviewed nearly 500 people. Enrico Quarantelli, the leader of the study, was particularly interested in Anchorage's small civil defense office. It should have been in charge of search and rescue, but Quarantelli noted it had quickly become bogged down over questions of bureaucratic protocol. Of course, the amateur mountaineers, the people who had like basically volunteered to do search and rescue, had taken over that function almost immediately. Quarantelli mm-hmm. used the term emergent groups to describe teams of self-organized volunteers like Davis's searchers. He didn't miss the irony that the agency created to protect c- civilians soon became an obstacle that this emergent group of rescuers had to work around. God, okay, yeah. You could argue, that, especially in times of this, the state's really just an obstacle for people, you know, trying to do important work. Yeah, they're just you getting could, in the way of people case. doing the, the, the work that needs to be done better and for free. Yeah, um, you could sick. argue that. Sick, you could sick, argue sick. that. Right. But then arguing that would lead you to other things that are very radical and so we will let's never continue this line of thinking. Definitely you don't, don't continue this line of thinking in your own house. Don't read a paradise built in hell and tribe and then think about the implications of that in terms of like how a polity should actually function. No, I would not. Ne- I would never lead with empathy. Please. I think that that's actually kind of a dangerous yeah. path to go down. Oh, horrible. Horrible. You might find yourself doing things, thinking thoughts. You might find yourself as part of an emergent group taking the responsibility for the safety and security of your fellow citizens into your own hands. I would. And then where would we be? I would never. Yeah, that, then we're then we're really fucked. Then we're fucked. <laughs> we start banding together. We're fucked. Yeah. My God, if we're taking care of each other instead of letting the the armed and angry young like men with. Yeah. We've talked enough about cops. Uh, it is funny that the story that I read right before recording this episode is about how a group of the state police in Kentucky, one of their training documents about a warrior mentality came out, and in it they quote Hitler positively. Oh, Perceptions and actions are not hindered by the potential of death. It's just like <laughs> they also quoted exhausting. Robert E. Lee. Oh, they encourage sick. police to be ruthless killers. I don't oh. know. I prefer emergent groups of people taking care of each other, but... 
whatever. I love emergent groups. I love that they're that yeah, they would still found a, <laughs> sounds scary. Don't want mm-hmm. any of those emergent groups getting near you and saving your life. Mm-hmm. You, you, you wouldn't want that. No, 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 no. no. They might loot. <laughs> they might loot food from a burning building. <laughs> that is so that yeah. Uh, You're like, but you didn't pay. You're like, yeah, the building is full of water. The building like, is on fire. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you just like shove a dollar bill in a fish's mouth. You're like, okay, we're we're square here. Yeah. God. Well, Jamie. Yeah. That's my episode on Elite Panic. I uh first of all think we should start a band called Elite Panic. I, I agree. We should start a punk band. It's, we Elite should Panic. start a band Absolutely. 25 years ago called Elite Panic. Mm-hmm. Uh get some wigs, do some metal. Absolutely. And, uh, and do get it really then. addicted to cocaine. Later be found to have engaged in a whole bunch of questionable sexual behaviors, like just <laughs> oodles of them on our private jet. Like, yeah, absolutely. 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 Yeah. And then and then and then twenty years after that, someone writes a bestseller about that and we get canceled mm-hmm. in the present. And then day. there's an HBO miniseries based on us. Yeah. And we're played oh, yeah. by that same guy who played David Koresh. The sexy stop David it. Koresh in you the oh, not, show. We're, we're stop both it. played by David. Yeah, we're, we're both, both played. We're by both that played guy. by David Koresh. Absolutely, and he yeah. wins an Emmy. Uh, he he wins all of the Emmys. Well, no, actually, those, I would say yeah. he's nominated for an Emmy, but then he loses to Forky. That's what I would say. <laughs> nice, nice callback to your last episode <laughs> and to the thing that happened to you with the Emmys. Oh, I'm never over it. Saw a child. Okay, so this is being recorded like the day before Halloween. Did see a child dressed as Forky Triggering. on the street today, and I was triggered. I was. I uh, still have no idea who Forky is, good. and I will. And that's I will what I love about every you. Web at my disposal to avoid learning <laughs> that was i have to say this is for all of the horrible atrocities we talked about today uh there there was some optimism to be found in yeah. in uh in this one i feel mm-hmm. i feel not completely terrible no because again the lesson that people learn over and over again in times like this is that like oh people take care of each other when things are bad like yeah. when everything goes to shit at once, people tend to be like, well, how can I help? That's mm-hmm. the normal human response. Unless you're rich or the mayor <laughs> or a general or, to think or the CEO of a supermarket chain <laughs> or, or a rich mayor. Yeah. If you're the baby, you're not. Yeah. Don't be the baby. Don't be the baby. Don't be the save baby. babies. Don't let them burn to death while saving cash registers. Don't be the baby and definitely don't be the son of a baby. Be a mm-hmm. person. Babies aren't people is what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> this will drop after the election. So it may la- land in a world incomprehensibly different than the one that we're currently in. But w- we'll probably be broadly similar to the one that we're in. But either shittier or maybe slightly less shitty. No, no real way to know. Yeah, this this podcast exists in a strange void in time. It does. It sure yeah. does. It is weird recording this and being like, "Who the fuck knows where everything's going to be?" So yeah, G- give yeah. us uh, give us ninety six hours. Who fucking knows? Yeah. Oh. Anyway, well, I had fun. I have fun too, Jamie. I enjoy talking about Elite Panic. It turns out I do too. Now that well, I know good. what it is. Well, for the people who are not elites who have panicked already, mm-hmm. you want to give your pluggables? Pl- uh, plugging away. Uh, you can uh, follow me on 
twitter.com at Jamie Loftus Help. You can listen to my new show, Lolita Podcast, which uh, examines the legacy of the book Lolita and gets really into who the character Dolores Hayes was and how she got lost in translation uh, throughout the adaptations that that this book was given over the years and uh yeah that starts on monday november 23rd and episodes will release every monday and robert you're going to be playing uh vladimir nabokov the the, yep. the role of a lifetime the role of a lifetime i th- it's the part oh, i shouldn't say that <laughs> <laughs> this is not a time for it's the part i was born to play <laughs> <laughs> he's actually um, not a terrible person so he's mm-hmm. uh and i've looked but mm-hmm. wait wasn't he didn't oh wait no lolita was supposed to be like anti that right lolita like is, the, the guy fucking the kid was supposed to be a bad guy right he, he was a villain yeah the book yeah, is, okay the book okay is pretty i've never squirrely. read it because it seemed gross anti-pedophile. Yeah. okay uh, that's good but everyone's interpretation like the the, the greater culture's uh interpretation was it, the exact opposite is it kind of like like Starship Troopers, where it's like uh, they made a movie to make fun of how bad fascism is and how bad how close to fascism America was, but instead everyone was like, "Look at those cool guns! I want to be those guys." It's literally <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. yeah. It's just like the smartest people uh, in the world being like, "So, I think here's I get how it. fucked you are." Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's it's uh, it's interesting and fucked up, and it's been you know ruining my yeah. day every day for a while. So you should listen yeah. to it. Never make anything with a message because people will misinterpret it and molest children. That's the message of today. And now there's going to be a whole podcast about it. Yay. Yeah. All right. Well, the episode's fucking over. Bye, Go guys. do Go whatever in, feels I know. reasonable in the incomprehensible world you live in now. <laughs> Bye. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality 
potency and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals. It's not about being the best in the world. It's about doing what's best for the world. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.